Alrighty, back again, this time to talk about Walter Benjamin's work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, or the age of its mechanical reproduction, or the age of its mechanical reproducibility, depending on your translation that you have. Uh, but this time to talk about this short, yet extremely important text. So before we hop into it, a few things to say. This can be found in podcast form on Podbean, iTunes, wherever podcast apps, you can find it there. Um, also... I have Instagram now, so that link will be in the description or that tag. Uh, also, Patreon is up there for those interested in that. And even if not, I left some pretty funny goals that I think would give you a chuckle at the very least. Uh, and with anything else, I don't think so. Let's get into it. All right, so first, Walter Benjamin. A few things to say about him. He was a member of, you know, what was understood to be the Frankfurt School, that included other people like uh, Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer, Herbert Marcuse, uh, and, and others. And he had a kind of rough go of things. Poor uh, Benjamin died at a pretty young age, at 48, when he was trying to flee uh, the Germans, where he, had to, he was forced to essentially commit suicide uh, at the French-Spanish border as he was trying to leave because the border was closed and he was not in a good position, which is really quite tragic, because he died much too young, and he obviously had much more to say. But one of the things he did get to say during his life, uh, or that he was able to do, was essentially perform a kind of excavation of modernity, looking at the various things that we take for granted, the kind of ruins of modernity, focusing on things that, you know, people interested in haute cultures, high culture, would ignore things like the streets, uh, bars, you know, the so-called messy areas of uh, civilization. Benjamin thought there was a lot to garner from that, and that's something we're going to get in this text here. So without further ado, let's jump into it, and hopefully it'll be pretty quick, but there's still enough to say. So he begins by saying that when Marx, that is Karl Marx, first set out a his radical critique of capitalism, he tried to account for what might come for capitalism. So for Marx, and there's some contention around this, uh, Marx saw the very possibility within capitalism for capitalism to come to an end. Now, that might seem strange, uh, especially some people that are very well-versed in the Marxist arts uh, might not be want to think that capitalism has embedded within it the possibility for its own undoing. So let me explain what I mean, or what I think Marx means when he says something like this, or, or alludes to this. For Marx, there were a number of milestones that were, we, were, we are required to meet before socialism or before communism can be erected out, out of capitalism. So some of these milestones include the development of a kind of scientific basis that is a knowledge among the general public. Now that can only come about with a certain degree of literacy, which could only come about when there was a certain degree of, um, or certain amount of resources kind of garnered, stockpiled, so that people could have certain advantages. So in that way, Marx and, and Engels very much saw capitalism as a necessary hurdle that'll push people into what was called, or what they called, a kind of scientific socialism. Now, without capitalism, that would be impossible. What is more, there's a letter written by 
Engels to, I can't remember who, uh, where he was saying that if people read Engels and Marx as though they were trying to say that they, that they wanted to turn the clock back on capitalism, that is to go to the system before capitalism, then they were markedly wrong. So Engels warned that any such a kind of uh, reading of Marx and Engels' work would lead to a regression that wouldn't progress civilization in any sort of way. And that is because they didn't hate capitalism per se. They saw it as a necessary evil that we are to advance through. Now, of course, this comes with a number of negative things, right? Like increased exploitation that Marx believed would push the working class to a state that is a state of class consciousness where they are with their backs up against the wall would have no choice but to essentially fight back. So having kind of set this up and Benjamin doesn't, you know, give a whole exposition into what Marx meant by this. This was just me filling in the blanks. Benjamin puts his own spin on things and he asks, what can we garner from art? And he doesn't mean a kind of utopian art produced by, you know, a purely communist class or a group of people existing outside of society. Benjamin is wondering if the art that we observe, and at his time here, the early 20th, mid 20th century, is the art that we see here. Does it kind of do anything for a revolutionary praxis, kind of revolutionary movement? And this art for him is the art of mechanical reproduction or art that is produced within that moment. The moment when art itself can be mechanically reproduced and mechanically produced. So what this does to art, that is what uh, mechanical reproduction to, uh, of art does, is it refuses to kind of lionize that is, it, it refuses to exalt, it refuses to appreciate certain things once assumed of art. So some of these things in his words go as follows. Creativity and genius, eternal value and mystery. So these things for him were embedded within old forms of art. And I use that term a little colloquially. Old, when I say old, let's just think pre-mechanical reproduction, which we will get into the history of here shortly. He says that these old forms of art were given a kind of status that supposedly hovered above everything else. So he sees that as being problematic. And he sees within mechanical reproduction, the possibility to undo that appreciation of art. Because that appreciation, and this will really be unraveled throughout the course of the text, that appreciation is in a sense, fascist. So therefore, what he wants to do here is to look at art in a non-fascist way or an anti-fascist way. So what does the history of this look like? Well, he says that historically humans have always copied things. Humans have always copied works of art. So the idea of reproduction is not new. In fact, the, even the idea of mechanical reproduction is not entirely new. He gives the example of lithography, which... To kind of put it simply, lithography is the act of um, tracing an image onto a stone and then layering it with a number of different chemicals and, and solutions to, to make sure that the, the image kind of stays uh, firm 
and that it gets kind of uh, melted into the stone. And then upon that stone, putting like a piece of paper or something like that, that once peeled up, will leave um, the image on the paper in its as um, close to the original as possible. Now, for him, that's a, that's an example of reproduction. The image, the work of art, is being reproduced and is therefore uh, copied. And it's kind of a neat process. It's worth checking online or watching a video on it. Um, but this, for him, lithography was a, a, a eventually overshadowed by photography. And photography presented something fundamentally new in that it was much more spontaneous, uh, it was much quicker, and it, in, in a way it was much more authentic. Whereas the thing produced lith lithographically was a work of art that was drawn. Whereas with photography, the drawing was kind of removed. It could, any image could be taken, and that is any photograph could be taken of anything. So he says that it was photography coupled with developments in sound production and sound reproduction that made any art form reproducible. So, no longer is the work of art the only thing that can be reproduced, like, the, like a painting. But now, works of art like the theater, like orchestra, or like symphonic music, or anything like that, can be reproduced. Now with the meeting of photography with sound production or reproduction. Now with this meeting of sound reproduction with photographic reproduction, uh, this allowed for what he calls the reproduction of artworks and the art of film to kind of emerge, which essentially troubled art in its traditional form. But something must happen here. Something must happen when, when a piece of art is copied that removes the copied work, that is the not the thing copied, but the copy from the original. And Benjamin concedes that this is what is called the here and now. The here and now is removed when you copy something. So beyond what we see when we see a work of art is a history. There's a history to a work of art that we don't necessarily see with our eyes, but we have to be made privy to it. That is, we have to be taught that there's a history to a thing that it belongs to a culture, to anything like that. When something is copied, all of that goes away, even though we might be seeing the exact same image. So, for example, if the Mona Lisa is perfectly copied, which has been done millions of times, and one person was to see the two different versions, they wouldn't be able to tell the difference. That is, they wouldn't know the culture, history of the work of art from seeing it. So it is only when this, the, these ideas are taught to someone does the work of art take on that added meaning, its own history. And this history, this here and now, he also calls the sphere of authenticity. Now, interestingly, Benjamin says that this is particularly germane, that is, this is particularly true in the age of mechanical reproduction, that is with, you know, sound reproduction and like photographic reproduction. This is more true in this stage than it is in previous ones where let's say someone copied an image perfectly by hand. So there's a new 
issue presented with mechanical reproduction, and this comes out in two reasons, or this is made apparent with two reasons that he provides. Firstly, technological reproduction can reveal new things of artwork or can manipulate it in new ways. That is, with mechanical reproduction, things can be revealed that were not seen in the original work of art. And here I'll give a couple of examples. So I'm sure everyone to some extent is familiar with Edward Muybridge. Now you might not know him by name, but he's the guy that filmed the horse running to see if at any point all four of the horse's hoofs or feet are off the ground at any one time. So they used a you know, stop motion camera and filmed this horse running along. And with that, they were able to, you know, pause it and see if at any point the horse's feet were all off the ground. So what this adduces, what this kind of provides evidence for, is that the technologies of me- indicative of mechanical reproduction allow for new observances that are not available to the human eye alone. Let's take another one. The Shroud of Turin doesn't really depict anything, and it is only with a certain uh, filmic lens that I think captures the negative, or um, or uh, camera obscura, can a new image be revealed? And the same goes for, you know, so-called real works of art, where a work of art, when put under a certain kind of uh, mechanical lens, can be seen to have smudge marks, can be seen to have various... Uh, indelible marks that give a kind of character that give that add maybe to the history of the thing that is not available to the human eye. So this act of copying, this act of like reproducing something in another form, opens up a new possibility for the thing itself that is not available when a thing is just copied by hand. So that's the first thing that's kind of different. Now, secondly, and this really the second one really builds off the first. In the age of mechanical reproduction, as opposed to reproduction by hand, there is a new possibility afforded to the work of art. So, in many of the same ways I just mentioned, there are new possibilities opened up for the work of art with mechanical reproduction. New things can be seen. It can be brought, it can be applied to new new locations. So mechanical reproduction, let's say, of a Mozart symphony, or kind of Mozart play, can be mechanically reproduced, that maybe it could be filmed, and then shown for other audiences that would not otherwise be able to see it because, you know, it's pricey or for any other reason. So it opens up a new possibility for it. Now, a reactionary might say that there is something, like, true about the work of art, and this is called its aura. Its aura is lost when something is reproduced. So for those people that might have read this in the past or thinking about reading it, it's very easy to think that Benamine laments um, the loss of the aura. That is, he wants to maintain the aura. When in fact, he doesn't. he's not saying that at all. He's saying the opposite. He's applauding the loss of the aura because of the possibility that it affords to other people or to all people. But those people that maintain the idea that the aura is what makes an artwork special 
and who maintain that the loss of the aura therefore comes with the loss of the artwork's integrity are also people who fear mass society, who think that the masses are going to kind of um, muddy what the work of art is. They're going to kind of infest it. And this shift, that is the shift from art as being a kind of thing reserved for just a small group of people to one now open to the masses, comes about in, I guess, concordance as a consequence to a number, or as a consequence of, a number of other developments, right? And these can very well be traced to capitalism. So the massification of society, the kind of... Um, development of various technologies that are afforded by, you know, capitalist, profit-driven, you know, expansion, and so on and so forth. So these are, this move, this development of mechanical reproduction is, in a sense, a consequence of capitalism. But let's keep in mind, let's think back to when, you know, I said at the beginning, that capitalism might actually allow for its own undoing with the things it develops. So in this case, maybe within mechanical reproduction, there's a kind of possibility afforded to the masses. But we'll still get into that a little more later. But before then, uh, Benjamin calls this the alignment of reality with the masses and the masses with reality. And that technological reproduction in this kind of massification, in his words, emancipates the work of art from its parasitic subservience to ritual. So, for example, in the case of the church, before the printing press, any one person's relationship to God was directly mediated by, you know, the priest or by the pastor or whatever person is there, uh, who, having had, have, having the knowledge to be able to read, could tell people what they understood in the text. Now, with the printing press, that allowed for essentially a massification of people reading, that is, more people reading the Bible or whatever religious text, uh, you know, we can insert here, which expanded the categories and opened up a kind of new potential. So that is an example of art being taken from a kind of privileged place of kind of monopolies of knowledge, that is, people who are able to contain the knowledge to a select few and open it up to everyone, which is obviously a good thing. Now, this presents a tension, the tension of what he calls the kind of cult value of an art object. So the cult value being its value in a specific kind of localized um, controlled space, let's say like art in a church versus its exhibition, that is, it's being placed on display. Now, these both have a value. That is, cult value has a value because it gains a value through its being special, and special is it being refused to the masses. And then exhibition value is the value that, that comes about through having something be seen. Now, this is really kind of before the age of, like, museums, but at, you know, in the old days, kind of vulgar way to put it, in the old days, cult value was really the where true art lived. It was specific, it was local, it was uh, a tied to ritual, it was tied to kind of tradition. Whereas now, high works of art, like Mona Lisa, 
you know, the Sistine Chapel, anything like that, are meant to be seen. So there was a shift. And Benamine traces this shift with this kind of massification that also gives birth or kind of gives a kind of credence to mechanical reproduction because there's a desire now to make things accessible. And he says that this shift from a kind of controlled uh, control over the artwork to one that's open represents a shift towards what he called calls quite enigmatically, in my mind, I don't really understand how he does this, but he says that it's a move towards play. So I guess we can only assume that the play here, the word play, uh, word play, the word play is the fact that it's opened up and it um, allows for a new kind of creativity to emerge, almost simply by virtue of it being accessible to more people, where now there are more possibilities for it. And whereas in the old form of art, what he calls a kind of primary art, uh, there was a, a desire to control, and especially to control nature and to control humans, like what humans could see this, what nature was depicted in art, if any at all, and also to maintain the distance between nature and art. Now there is what he believes to be a kind of interplay developing between nature and between humanity with this mechanical reproduction, or with what he calls the secondary art, with simply reproduction. So what's an example of this? Because so far we, we're kind of like pie in the sky. We're just kind of talking in abstract terms. Well, now he talks about film specifically, where he says that film contributes to this play or this interplay between nature and humanity because it does something very special for the viewer. And what he says it does for the viewer is it allows them to, in his words, deal with a vast apparatus whose role in their lives is expanding almost daily. And that it essentially teaches humans that once they have adapted to the form, that is, the mechanical reproduction indicative of the film, within their own lives, can they be emancipated? So how does the film do, how does the film does this? How does the film do this? My God, how does the film do this? Well, to kind of lay this out, he um, compares it to the Greek ideal of art, which he identifies as sculpture. And the reason that sculpting was the ideal form of art for the Greeks was because it couldn't be altered. So when the sculpture was done, it was done. There was nothing else to be done with it. Whereas with film, Throughout the whole process, and even after it's done, things are cut, edited, redone, um, you know, ad infinitum, essentially, for as long as the film exists. And that allows a kind of potential that allows for a possibility to expand. And the real radical claim that he's trying to level here is that film is actually not art which might seem strange because so far we've been talking about art. Whereas he says that film represents something entirely different. So when he says this, he's writing against some early film theorists like um, Severin Miles and uh, Gantz. I think that first name was French. Uh, and Gantz, who always sought to either compare film to quote-unquote real art or to um, kind of applaud it for being a new art form, 
Benamine says that it is markedly different from art as we traditionally understand it, and this is where the possibility lies, uh, for a number of different reasons. So for example, the film actor, he says, is not producing art or is not acting for an audience. They are acting for what he calls a group of specialists. So you have directors and camera people and producers and you know lighting technicians and sound technicians and all these different people that can stop the action at any moment because they kind of stand above the art form. No one in an audience can tell the uh, play to stop. But in the act of film acting, the act of film acting, in the act of film acting, the actor can be forced to stop because they are essentially subordinate to these group of specialists or this group of specialists. So the act of making a film is like a perpetual rehearsal. So they are always trying to get it right. Even after the film's done, there could be, you know, reshoots or in the editing process, things are altered to make them right. So it's, it would be like saying that a rehearsal for a play is not a work of art. And I think everyone would agree that rehearsing for a play is not the play itself. Now for Benamine, the entire process of making a film is like a rehearsal. It is a perpetual rehearsal and is therefore not the act itself. And that all the final film is, in his words, because of this, is to make test performances capable of being exhibited. Where it is just a giant spectacle of the mechanical reproduction that made it possible. So the cameras that made it possible, the editing processes that made it possible, all the sound technicians, the lighting technicians, directors, producers, make up everything else that made it possible. And it is by virtue of this, and I think this is one of his more interesting claims, that the film actor shares something with the average everyday worker. That is the person that wakes up every morning and goes to work, whether it be in a factory or an office or a bartender, whatever. And he says that the thing that bridges them is the fact that they both relinquish their humanity in the face of an apparatus. So that when people go to see a film, they identify with the person, with the film actor. And it is through that that they can see themselves, quote-unquote, taking revenge on that apparatus because they are the one that we see. We don't see the entire apparatus. We see the person standing above it being the figure of that apparatus. And this mounts an, uh, an attack on the aura. That is the maintenance of a kind of privilege to a work of art that is removed from the masses. But if you're listening to this, or you know you're reading this or have read it, and you sense a kind of optimism here, you're right. Benamine is might be a little bit naive right now in saying this. He might be a little naive in that he thinks that by watching films, we are doing something revolutionary. And he says, wait a second, wait a second. He says, of course we have to be careful that this possibility is not just kind of controlled or subsumed within a capitalist media machine or in a kind of capitalist economy. Because if it is, we will have counter-revolutionary consequences or developments. And what is more, as long as audiences are unaware of the kind of potential afforded within film, then they will be susceptible to a kind of 
massification that can be mobilized, that can be made productive for fascist or totalitarian purposes. So what are some examples of this happening? That is capitalist exploitation of the film as revolutionary potential versus a more maybe communist one, one that's more communal. Well, he gives the example of uh, Russian film. And Russian film often depicts people in the kind of natural settings where workers are depicted, where average everyday people are depicted. And that for Benamin is the more resistive um, or more kind of revolutionary depiction because it makes of everyone a kind of actor and a kind of exalted position that can open up to the eyes of others the very conditions of life itself. Now we contrast this with Western European more capitalist films that rely more heavily on like the creation of stars or these big actors that are then removed from the general public taken outside of it to be exalted to be kind of you know made to be angelic like angels that float above everyone else so when film is more is geared towards the public that is it presents the public and it creates films that are relevant to the public it opens up a possibility to escape from what he calls this prison world and it can show us things that we don't necessarily see with our own eyes in this prison world, like slow motion, like, um, you know, zooming in. For example, let's say a factory worker is depicted in a film and the shot zooms in to see like beads of sweat rolling off, so off of their face that might elicit a response in the viewer that makes them aware of the conditions that the person is in that they might not be able to see with their own eyes because maybe they're too busy with their thing. Maybe there's someone that doesn't necessarily work in a factory and doesn't know about that kind of condition. Maybe that's not the best example, but it's one that I think gets at the heart of the matter. But interestingly, Benjamin locates a, a, a new potential afforded by Disney films and afforded by American cinema more generally that is completely removed from reality. So it's not like the star system described before, well, it is that, but it, it adds more in that it allows for laughter. So it allows for laughter that can be, um, that can kind of mitigate, not mitigate, that can kind of ward off what he calls mass psychosis through, and he says that Disney films do this particularly, through a kind of therapeutic release. So one figure that he was so interested in or extremely interested in and there's a very short essay he wrote I think it's only a couple pages on it uh, was Mickey Mouse where he saw Mickey Mouse as being kind of a revolutionary figure because Mickey Mouse allows people to laugh together and he says that that is what is is really revolutionary having people come together and laugh now what does all this mean politically well, various kind of political movements try to mobilize this potential of mechanical reproduction. So, fascism does it in one way by kind of aestheticizing everything, making everything aesthetic. So, it, you know, makes a kind of art form out of war, makes an art form out of, you know, war parades, makes an art form out of uh, guns built, makes an art form out of destruction, and so on and so forth. So fascism mobilizes mechanical reproduction 
to remove the aura of art, but for its own ends. So it's still oppressive in that way. It's probably even more oppressive uh, for Benamine. Now, in response to this, and this is kind of the famous uh, concluding line, sorry, uh, is that communism responds by politicizing art. So fascism um, aestheticized politics, while communist responds, communism responds by politicizing art. So what does that mean? Uh, well, in the way that I just described, fascism aestheticizes everything. And then communism comes along and says, no, art has a value. Art has an aura. Art has a meaning. You can't just decontextualize it and use it for whatever purpose you want. So Benjamin doesn't like either of these perspectives because fascism strips away the aura but uses that for its own oppressive ends, whereas communism, in a kind of reactionary, almost conservative way, tries to replace the aura so that, you know, fascism can't lay claim to it, or it kind of privileges the work of art in such a way that to, um, to kind of disarm cap, uh, fascism's, fascism's use of a kind of aesthetic form. So that wraps up the text itself. But I want to say uh, one more thing about the difference between Benjamin here and Theodore Adorno, another figure in the Frankfurt School. So whereas Benjamin says that in many ways cinema and film is all we have as a kind of group of people coming together to enjoy you know, each other's company and to enjoy our engagement with the thing, Adorno says that that is actually a good precursor to a kind of fascist system because people, you know, lose sight of their terrible conditions when they come in or go and watch Mickey Mouse. Uh, and they, they, when they do that, they lose sight of the oppression that they are suffering. So it's good to be aware of both of these positions. And I haven't done any Adorno yet. I am planning within the next few months to do the dialectic of enlightenment. Um, but here to give a kind of glimpse into some of the conflicts, and there are many between Benjamin and Adorno um, that are certainly worth kind of excavating. Uh, but yeah, that pretty much wraps this up. If you have any questions, any kind of concerns, uh, want to add any more, I'd love to hear it. Uh, make sure to check out all the links I leave here because it you might find something helpful there or whatever. Uh, and I'll catch you next time. Peace out.